Well, I hope you've had a good Christmas and uh, um, I think a lot of people have uh, moved out of town um, to visit family and catch up with people that they haven't been with uh, you know, for a long time. And it's good finally that people are able to get together with family and spend this time together in the year to, uh, to celebrate uh, Christmas. And who watched their Christmas carols the other night? Yeah, you watch it? You know, I, I, I'm always amazed when I hear those carols that are sung and the, the way they're sung and, and the, the words that they sing, how people can sing those things, celebrating the birth of the king and, you know, the Lord of all and, you know, and all those things. And I just wonder whether that, those words ever sink in. Um, and I know I didn't, they didn't sink in with me. You know what I mean? I could sing those every year, but not realize what I was actually singing. It's a bit like there's a, there's a veil in front of people's eyes, but it, we can celebrate, as Brother Gomez said, every day because we have the Lord in our lives every day, not just this, this time of the year. But uh, it's, a good, it's a good time uh, for us to share the gospel to other people during this time because they're most open to it. And so I would encourage you all to share that truth that's changed your lives with them. We've received that wonderful gift. And let's share that gift with other people because it's the most precious gift you could share. Let's open up in a word of prayer and we'll, uh, and we'll get into this uh, message this morning. But to be sharing God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your loving kindness. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to celebrate what we have in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We thank you for that wonderful gift that you sent to this earth, Lord, that precious and perfect Lamb of God who came and paid for our sins on Calvary's cross. We just thank you for that blood that was shed for the perfect life that was lived and for the grace that now saves us from an eternity in hell. And Father, we celebrate you this morning. We thank you that you loved us so much that you're willing to give that which was most precious to you for our sake. So we thank you for that gift and we pray that our lives would honour that gift and that we would glorify you through your gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 this morning as we have a bit of a Christmas message and I have taken a bit of a detour uh, from Daniel, which we have um, essentially uh, gone through about 20 weeks worth. But I thought since we've come to the end of the year, we've got Christmas and uh, last week was our first time we could get together with unlimited numbers. So I felt that was a bit of an occasion. So I've taken a bit of a, a detour from Daniel, but uh, we'll be back in the new year. We have about three to go, I suspect. But when I say three, you know me. Um, who knows what's going to happen anyway. So Luke chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 to 5. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Okay. You know, I think I love about the Bible, one thing I learned, um, having studied it for a while now, is that it often presents to us two contrasting things okay so it'll often in stories within the bible it will often show you something dark something light it will show you an error compared to truth it will show you good versus bad and oftentimes that will be done with people so it will show you this particular person is living this way or is like this compared to this person who is like this 
Okay, and one thing we, we learn from the Bible is um, that there are contrasts in the world, that there is good, that there is evil, that there is light and darkness and truth and error and all those things. And when you contrast one with the other, you get a better appreciation of the light when you see how dark the darkness is. So um, it's a, I think it's a bit of a, uh, a method they use in art as well where you're able to contrast two things to bring out something else. And I think this is what this message is about this morning. This will be about contrasting essentially two people. One is Caesar Augustus, and the other one is the Son of God. And so what I'd like to do is bring that out to you this morning, and hopefully uh, it'll be a blessing to you. So... I'll give you a bit of a history of Caesar Augustus, okay? Because it mentions him here in verse 1 that a decree had gone out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So Caesar Augustus wasn't always known as Caesar Augustus. He didn't start off that way. In fact, he had many names during his life. He was born Gaius Octavius, okay? So his surname was Octavius after his father. But his father died and... He was adopted by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. Well, you're going to be adopted by someone. Julius Caesar uh, is not a bad uh, adoptive father, the most powerful man uh, on the planet at that stage. But upon his adoption, he took Caesar's name. So the, so the, the method was, or the, uh, the Roman adoption naming standard was you take your adoptive father's name. So he became there, not, not Gaius Octavius, he became Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius. So he put Julius Caesar's name in the middle there, quite a long name, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, he actually became. But in 42 BC, when he was dedicating a temple to his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, the temple of Divus Julius, or the comet star, in other words, Julius Caesar was then proclaimed to be a god, okay? He became the son of that god. So he added the name Divi Filius, the son of the divine, okay? So he became Octavius, so he, he became Gaius Julius Caesar Divi Filius. It's getting longer. It's Italian names. They're really complicated. Anyway, <laughs> In 38 BC, it didn't end there, it didn't end there. In 38 BC, Octavian replaced his Gaius with the and, and the first name Julius with Imperator. And that was a title by which troops hailed their leader when they had military success. So he shortened his name a bit, but he became Imperator Caesar Divi Filius. Now in 27, about nine years later there. Um, when he defeated, remember, you know, Mark Antony and Cleopatra? Okay, you know those two, right? So he had a war with them. When he defeated them, the Roman Senate voted a new title on him, and he became Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. So they added Augustus to his name as well. And that stuck with him. He stopped there, okay? That stuck with him until he died, which was in AD 14. So Caesar Augustus, which is the shortened version of his name, was the most powerful man in the entire world, with authority over the greatest landmass in, in the world's land. And this included, at that time, Israel. 
which was one of his provinces. Egypt, he considered one of his playgrounds. Okay? He was the leader of the most powerful army in the world, or the world had ever seen. He then had a month named after him, which is still, which is still uh, relevant today. That's why we have August, because it's named after Caesar Augustus. Okay? He was deified himself, okay, with a temple honouring him. He had his face on all currency as well. And that face on that currency was probably the coin. We know when Jesus says, whose face is on there? So in Luke 20, verse 24, Jesus says, Show me a penny. Whose image and subscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and to God the things which be God's. You know whose face? It was Caesar Augustus. It was his face. And Rome, if you, if you had to compare Rome to our modern day, it's very hard because it was the world's greatest empire. But if you had to compare it to like a, a, a country, you'd probably compare it to the US, right, in the last half a century, essentially. Because the US became the most powerful nation on the, in the world and it became the most popular. So it influenced the entire world, but also people wanted to get, to get into the US. There's people still trying to get into the US now from, from countries that are you know, having struggles. But Rome was a bit like that. It became the most powerful nation on earth and the most advanced. The most advanced in weaponry, the most advanced in power, the most advanced in a number of different ways. In fact, you know, even when Rome fell, and you, uh, so most of you who've done history know that the barbarians, okay, the Germanic tribes came down and eventually uh, defeated Rome. It was so advanced that they didn't actually destroy it. They actually adopted its its uh, procedures and methods and things. So. The, the Germanic tribes actually took on themselves the Roman culture because they liked it so much, even though they had defeated Rome at that stage. But places outside of Rome were considered primitive places, were considered backwater places, were considered places that really needed to, to step up in the world and to be governed properly by Rome. And people wanted to be Roman. It was popular to want to be Roman because you had so many advantages being a Roman. You were protected. You, were you, you had greater privileges. It was cool to be Roman. Yeah? It was cool. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, even appealed when he was being uh, persecuted by his own people, the Jews, he appealed to who? To Caesar. Why? Because as a Roman citizen, he had certain legal rights and he appealed to those rights. And it was Augustus who was ruler of the Roman Empire when the Son of God was born into the world to a virgin named Mary in a little town that was considered a bit of a backwater called Bethlehem. And it's in the shadow of this imposing figure called Augustus um, and the decrees that were issued by him that we're going to compare now the Son of God and what he did. So look at verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. 
and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Uh, you'll notice that the Bible, when it gives dates, when it's trying to lock down a date, you'll notice it actually doesn't give you a, a date. It doesn't say, you know, 25 BC or whatever, because that was not the way they would number things. In those days, the way you would work out when a particular date was or a particular time frame was, you'd normally mention which king was in power because kings were normally in power for only a particular time. And then in the, within the reign of those kings, you would have other people who were governing in other places. So that's why it's mentioning here, it says that Caesar Augustus, made the decree so we know it's before 14 AD so everyone knew when Caesar was in power and then it mentions that Cyrenius was governor of Syria so you know it's within a particular period which may have been maybe a two or three year period and that's how they gave dates in those days so that's why it often mentions the names of kings or the names of kings then of someone else because it's trying to lock you into a particular time but anyway Augustus um, was well known historically for having reformed the government revenues. You know taxes? We don't. You don't know what taxes are, do you? No, you do. Um, some things never change. What do they say? It's always death and taxes are always. Yeah? Okay, so Augustus um, was well known for having reformed the revenue collection of the Roman Empire. You see, to keep a, a huge apparatus, the Roman Empire going, you had a lot of soldiers to pay, you had things to do, you had buildings to build, aqueducts to, you know, to manufacture and make. Um, you needed a lot of money to keep that whole thing going. And so they used to have what was called the tribute system. You know, it says pay tribute to, it'll mention, it'll mention in the Bible, pay tribute to someone. Well, that was not very well managed. So what uh, Augustus decided to do was to have a census and then extract a certain amount of money from a particular province depending on how many people were living there so it was dependent on your population as to how much tax they would expect from for example melbourne might have a population of say five million they would expect a certain amount of money from melbourne then a certain amount of money from sydney and a certain based on how many people there were in those days and that explains why Joseph and Mary had to travel back to Bethlehem because they were fulfilling a census. They had to know how many people were in each particular province so they knew how much to tax. That's the whole purpose of it. And so before that system, something else that he changed, he changed private tax collectors. He got rid of them in Italy. Okay, When I say Italy, I mean the, the major, the Roman Empire in, in itself, not all the provinces around so what he did, he got rid of private tax collectors within Italy, but kept them in the outer regions. And what were private tax collectors? Well, these were people who would bid. It's like, you know, when they contract out something, what they would do is they would bid to become the tax collectors for their town, for instance. So, so you could become a tax collector for Faulkner, let's say, right? Uh, and you would bid for that. So whoever bid at the highest for Faulkner would get to become the tax collector for Faulkner. And then the, the, the Roman government, because they knew how many people were in Faulkner, told you this is how much you know you can you can collect. Okay. But then what would happen is that if you collected more than what you needed, because the average people didn't know how much you were supposed to collect from each of them, you can collect more and you can pocket the rest. And so these people were not very liked around the place. 
And so in Italy, he abolished, he abolished them. But in all the outer provinces like Israel, he didn't. And you know what these people are called in the Bible? Publicans. So that word publicans, which I used to think were people who ran taverns and hotels and pubs. But not, they're not running any hotels or taverns or pubs. They're tax collectors. So when you see the word and read the word publican in your Bible, these were people who were those private tax collectors working for the Roman government who were collecting taxes from their own people. But oftentimes they would be taking more money than what they were supposed to because they were lining their pockets with it. Okay, And one of those tax collectors was called Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. So here we have the calling of Matthew. It says in verse 9, Matthew 9, 9, And as Jesus passed uh, forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. That was the place where he would collect the tax. Okay, And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners these are bad people what's he doing hanging around with all these bad people if he calls himself a prophet the beautiful thing about this is that matthew being a tax collector and a publican called all his publican mates to come and hear jesus and that's why they were sitting around with jesus because Matthew had shared the gospel with them and said, come and hear this guy. He's called me. I'm following him now. And so many publicans became saved as a result of someone like Matthew's witness. The same thing with sinners. But what a contrast between Jesus and Caesar Augustus. While Caesar Augustus surrounded himself with powerful people, the most powerful people in the world, he surrounded himself with very influential and intelligent advisors. He surrounded himself with powerful armies. Everywhere he went, he would have an army and an escort and guards on duty. He was an important person. While he went around surrounding himself with those types of people, the Lord of hosts, the man, the God, the only God who commanded the armies of heaven, he could have wiped away all the legions of Rome in a matter of a minute. Didn't rely on his angelic armies. Didn't rely on, on powerful and influential people. Instead, who's Jesus surrounding himself with? With fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, and people who were essentially the outcasts of society. The people that society hated the most. While Augustus sought to increase his, increase his power, his wealth and influence by having his face put on coins, by giving himself grandiose titles, 
by having months and calendars named after him, by having temples dedicated to himself, the almighty son of God forsook the throne that he was sitting on, worshipped by angels in heaven, and instead took upon himself the form of a fragile and helpless baby, born in a lowly stable with animals, and even placed within a manger, a place where the animals would eat their food. While Augustus issued decrees that affected the lives of millions of people, forcing them to, to go to their ancestral homes and extracting taxes from them, including a, a young couple who were expecting, who travelled to a small town called Bethlehem, God the Father had issued a decree also long before to free the world, to free the people of the world of their debt of sin. And the Son of God would come so that their debt could be forgiven rather than imposing more debt upon them. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Because this all happened in God's timing. Everything Caesar Augustus did, regardless of whether he did it for good, for bad, for himself, or for any other purpose, God knew already what he was going to do, and everything fell into God's plan. Regardless of how evil this man was, regardless of how highly he thought of himself, whatever he was doing was within God's plan and ultimately fulfilled God's plan. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So in essence, in God's perfect timing, when he determined that the time had come, he sends his son into the world, born of a woman, and he subjected himself to the very same laws that he expected his people to be subject to. And for what purpose? To redeem, which means to free and to liberate us who were under the law and indebted because the law condemned us as sinners, that we might be adopted as God's own children. Now, Augustus, who was Octavius, was adopted by Julius Caesar, and he became son of the divine. Well, guess what you and I are now? We are children of the divine. God has adopted us into his own family because of what Jesus did when he came into the world. Peter, the Apostle Peter describes what that redemption is like. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Because God redeemed us, freed us, so that we might be adopted as his children. And then Peter now explains what that redemption process was like. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So you see, God decreed before the earth was even formed that this was going to take place. And there is nothing that can stop God's plan because he sits outside of time. He is not locked into it like us. He sits outside of time and can see the end from the beginning and decree exactly what is going to take place in the meantime. So men like Caesar Augustus can rise at any point. And whether those people are Nebuchadnezzar or um, Darius or Cyrus or whoever else, Alexander the Great, doesn't matter how powerful they are, in the end they all end up moving their chess pieces exactly the way God expected them to move them. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows everything from beginning to end. So when God decreed before the foundation of the earth that his own son would become the Lamb of God, you see, God already knew that we were going to fall. Before man even sinned, God already had set up a plan to save us. And that was through his own son because he could enter into our world and enter into this darkness that still exists in the world so in order to save us from this darkness and become his children. And just as Caesar Augustus was manifest in those days and he manifest himself all over the place, including coins, so that people could see his face everywhere, the Bible says that the Son of God was manifest for us in these last days. So go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 3 with me. And it says that all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. You see, in those days, and the reason they did it this particular way was to make them to go back to their, to their hometown is because the majority of people still lived on the same land that their ancestors lived on. You see, when your parents passed away, where did that land go? If you owned land, it was passed down to your children and to their children and to their children. So much of the land, regardless of whether you were in the Roman Empire, was often handed down to your children. So your children didn't normally... Look, we are very mobile these days. You know, we, you, you can start growing up, you know, in, in Avondale Heights, like me. Who, who knows where Avondale Heights is? Only about five of you. Okay. I'll give you a geography lesson next time. Um... But you could end up moving anywhere and living anywhere. We, this is the, the nature of our, of our world where we live in because we're very mobile. It's easy to move from place to place, but it was less so in those days because if you were, say, the son of a, of, you know, of a farmer, well, that land would be handed down to you and you probably would have been raised farming. And so you already knew what your father did. And if your father was a particular type of, uh, of tradesperson, you'd normally adopt the trade of your father. But you wouldn't go far from your father's place. You see, Jesus was a carpenter as well. And he learned the trade of his father. And he would have continued, no doubt, if he didn't have this, this, this plan to, to accomplish for God, to be a normal carpenter in his, in his thing. And he probably did. He probably was a simple carpenter. So in those days, you normally hung around where your family was. Now, if you had parents and you had cousins or whatever, you'd normally hang around the same sort of area. So if you were traveling far away, if you were traveling somewhere, it would not normally be for a, to settle down somewhere. It would normally be roughly, 
You'd be normally be where you were, or maybe it'd be just for a time that you would travel. But it says there that he forced them to go back to their ancestral homes, the lands that were owned, that were passed down normally through inheritance. So Augustus had ordered everyone back to their hometown to get a good idea of how much wealth each one possessed and how many people were or could generate wealth in that province. And it seems that Joseph had moved. For whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, Joseph had, Joseph had moved from Bethlehem up to Nazareth. And you know how far Nazareth is from Bethlehem? Talking 144 kilometers. That's a decent move. Maybe it was him that moved. Maybe it was his parents that moved. Maybe it was for some other reason. Maybe his grandparents had moved there. But he was now forced to travel all the way from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem to be back to where his ancestral home was, where his family grew up. And so it says in verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, how's that? Imagine being a descendant of King David. Lovely. He was a descendant of King David. And most of you know that Joseph, or you should know that Joseph wasn't Jesus' natural father, right? He was like a stepfather. But he was, but Joseph was of the lineage of David. And not just Joseph, but Mary. Mary was also a descendant in her lineage from King David as well. And that's why when you look at, if you've ever noticed, when you read the, um, the, and the what's it called, the lineage, uh, the, the genealogy. So who, who, who gave, that's, that's good, I'll, I'll pay you later. Um, when you read the genealogies in uh, Luke and Matthew, you'll notice, and they're a bit different. They're exactly the same unto King David. And then from King David, they actually take a different line. And you think, well, how can that be right if Jesus... But the reason we're given two lineages is that one goes through Joseph's line and one goes through Mary's line. So Jesus was not only a descendant from one parent, but from both. And why is it called... You'll notice here it says that it was called the city of David. Go back to 1 Samuel with me and I'll explain to you why... Bethlehem was called the city of David. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. 1 Samuel 17, verse 12 says, Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of, ben, of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shema. And David was the youngest, and the three elders followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. 
You see, David was born in Bethlehem. That's why it's his hometown. But you'll notice something interesting, that his father was called, in the verse 12, the Ephrathite. Okay? The, take a note. Just take note of that. So, Bethlehem was not only the birthplace of David, it was, it was the, the ancestral home of, his, of Jesse, his father, who was an Ephrathite. And we know that David, even though he was the youngest, would become king of Israel. And furthermore, God promised King David that his kingdom would be established forever, that his kingdom would not end. It would go on forever. And Micah prophesied something special about him. Turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, because this all goes and feeds into the birth of Christ and why we celebrate Christmas. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, this is many years after David came into the world or David was king. We're talking about one of the last prophets in the Old Testament. So you're talking hundreds of years after. But Micah prophesies and says in Micah 5, 2, But thou, and you're still looking, I'll give you another couple of moments. But thou, you'll notice it says, Bethlehem, Ephrata. That's because of Jesse's connection here, because his family were Ephrathites. Okay, that's why it's this particular part or place in Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee, shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. And this is what I love in this verse. Whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. The one who would be born in David's ancestral home would be a descendant of his who would rule Israel. And we clearly are told here that his goings forth, this particular uh, person who's going to be born, his goings forth, would be from old, from everlasting, and there's only one who is everlasting, which tells us clearly that this person who was going to be born in Bethlehem was the Son of God, was God himself who would come into the world to take up the throne of King David, and he would be a descendant at the same time of King David. In fact, Second Samuel 7, 16 says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever because God was going to fulfill and sit himself on that throne. And God, during the days of Caesar Augustus, was fulfilling that promise. Turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 31 with me, because here we have a description of the angel Gabriel's visit to Mary to announce to her the one who she would give birth to, that he would be the promised one, the one that was prophesied in Micah, the one that was uh, promised from the big foundation of the world, who would be the saviour of all mankind. And so Luke one thirty one says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. 
and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So there's, that's why the birth in Bethlehem, why Christmas is a very important time. We remember that this is the fulfillment of the promises God had made, not just to mankind, but to King David specifically, to Abraham, to all the prophets that came before. And so in their travel to Bethlehem, Joseph rang ahead and made a booking for the hotel. No. How do you travel 144 kilometres to a town that you're going to without what if? Uh, without booking it ahead. It's a bit hard, isn't it? To confirm those. Even now, like you, you can book something in and then when you get there, something might have gone wrong. Well, to travel with a pregnant wife for 144 kilometres on foot, essentially, um, would have been quite the journey, first of all. But you didn't know what to expect when you got there. I don't know how, how much, much family Joseph uh, had there who he could rely on, but obviously there weren't many because there wasn't a place for them to stay. If you're travelling from Nazareth to Bethlehem today, it'll take you about two and a half hours by car or about 30 hours walking. Okay. It's not a small trip for a pregnant woman by any means because it says that she was well into her pregnancy. And not knowing what you have to expect when you get there would be another dimension that we probably would struggle with today. But it got even worse. Because look at Luke chapter 2, verse 6. Not only was this a huge trip for them with a lot of uncertainty built into it, but it says in verse 6, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Hey, he's arrived there and she's now ready to give birth. Um, where's the women's hospital? No women's hospital, no children's hospital, no, uh, no general hospital. Um, and verse 7 says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. They had no place for them to stay. There was nowhere. That's why they ended up in a stable. That's why they ended up in a, essentially like a cave where they used to keep animals out of the, you know, in, in, in shelter. And the question you might ask yourself is, mate, God, you know, you knew your son was going to be born in the world, but why did you make them travel like 30 hours to get there? Why, why not make it easier? Why not, why not make her pregnant after she got to Bethlehem? Do you know what I mean? Why not wait a little bit, do you know what I mean, to give them a chance to settle down? And to, no, no, they had to travel all that way. And then when they got there, no accommodation even. And you're a, you're a woman who's expecting a thing. And so you imagine poor Joseph, you know, what do I do? I mean, most men are useless around, uh, around birthing times. Couldn't find a clean room for your wife. No safety, no cleanliness, no help. It's a pretty, pretty dis uh, desperate situation. 
the only place you can find is a place where there's animals uh, and the, the innkeeper says, well, you can go there if you want. Uh, he's got his pregnant wife and he's leading her into a stable where there's hay and, and the smell of manure and feeding troughs with animals. Mate. And then the only, pl only place you can put your child after he's born is in a feeding trough. Don't have any nice new clothes. I mean, how, how lovely is it to dress your, your newborn baby in those nice, beautiful little clothes and after they're washed and, uh, you know, you, you, you clean them and you, you, you put them in a beautiful, you wrap them up in a beautiful soft blankets and everything. Well, it says he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Strips of, strips of discarded materials. God, couldn't you have made it any easier? He could have. He can do anything. But he didn't. He didn't make it easy. He could have made it very easy. He could have made it very simple. But what's interesting is that in the trials that God allowed them to go through, he reveals his grace. And he reveals his love. He reveals his mercy and his power. If he had changed it, if he had made... You know, Jesus to be born like any other child in, a, in very safe conditions and they didn't have to travel, they didn't have to go to Bethlehem, they didn't have to do all those things. Uh, what would have happened to all those sermons about the humble birth of a saviour? All those Christmas carols that talk to us about his birth and what he did. How about all those millions of people who have been inspired to strive and persist in their lives despite the difficulties that they go through. Yes, we can be inspired and we can be moved and stirred by the grace and the mercy of God because he's, he allowed his son to be born into poverty. He was ignored by the world, by all of the big leaders, except for Herod, who wanted to kill him, I suppose. He was disregarded by powerful people like Caesar and his own people weren't even ready to accept him. The birth of God's own son, Jesus, inspired us, inspires us today because he willingly lowered himself to our level. I love that phrase when they say, he walked a mile in my shoes. Well, he didn't walk a mile in my shoes because he didn't even have shoes. So he made it, he lowered himself even below what we would normally be used to. So we might be inspired by his amazing love. Turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. It says there, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, have there not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath 
God-chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. What might seem weak and foolish and fragile in this world is the means that God normally uses to glorify himself and to reveal his awesome power and love. He chooses the weak things of the world, which include us, to reveal his love and his grace. What seems, with what seem powerful forces in the world, God can use the weakest and most fragile to fulfill his own plans. This is the way God has always worked throughout history. God has never worked with the greatest powers. When he chose Israel, were they the greatest people in the, on the world, in the world? No, he actually says, I chose you the smallest, the weakest. If you look at his prophets, they were not men who were powerful. And when he brings his own son into the world, he doesn't come with great power and armies. He comes fragile in the form of a baby. What seems weak and unprofitable from an earthly point of view is the very thing God uses to give gifts, to grant grace, to reveal his power and his love. We are precious to God because God can use us to glorify himself even though we are weak. We have a wonderful example of what now to do in Christmas with this Christmas message that we've been given. You see, if you've received Christ, you've received that precious gift from God. Your life has been changed. There are plenty of gifts that are flying around at the moment, right? Many will be re-gifted. Put to the side and never used sent back or maybe even if you like the gift that you've been given you may use it for a while and it may give you certain benefits or enjoyment but the gift that we receive from god is something that never ever fades away it's something that's more precious than all the other gifts in the world put together because it's something that can't be earned by human effort and we've been given that gift for all of eternity and it's something when we opened up that gift, and this is the challenge that we have with the people around us, is that the gift is not just something you can receive, but something you can also give to other people as well. You see, you can pass this gift on and it actually keeps on multiplying. And so I want to just finish up with just a few points on what we are to do in response to this gift, to this wonderful gift and how God allowed his son to come into this world to save sinners like us. And I want to look at the shepherds. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 now describes a group of people who were given this notice, who were told about this event, who were ready to receive it. And they were shepherds. They weren't considered powerful or influential in their own right. They were simply Simple people looking after flocks. And Luke chapter 2 verse 8 says, And there were in the same country shepherds of the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Saviour, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill toward men. So while the spiritual leaders and while the spiritual shepherds in Israel in those days, the religious leaders, missed the birth of Christ, disregarded it, simple shepherds who were looking after their sheep at night were giving this amazing, amazing message straight from these messengers from heaven. And while shepherds are meant to protect and lead uh, their, their flock to pasture and water, the shepherds of Israel did not. Not these shepherds, but the spiritual shepherds of Israel weren't leading their people to pasture, weren't leading them and expanding on the word of God, weren't feeding them with the tr- their, own, their own mouths and lining their own pockets. They were too busy about their own popularity and their own influence and their own power. In essence, what they were doing was exactly like Caesar was doing. Too busy about building up their own popularity. The angel arrives to give this message, to give this truth, this light that comes down to the world. This light that comes into the darkness. The angels came into the darkness of this world, both physically and spiritually. And light accompanies the message. And the shepherds who were first fearful when they saw them, not understanding what was happening, were then given a message that said, don't fear, don't worry, don't be afraid. Well, we've got some good news for you. And it's good news not just for you, but for all the people in the world. Not just the Jews, but for everyone. Because on this day, the Saviour will be born into this world. And the angels even then told the shepherds what to look for. Look for a baby who's in a manger, who's, being, who's sleeping in a feeding trough, and he's wrapped up in, in, in rags, essentially. Goodwill from God to you. This is God's gift to you. God wants good for mankind. He wants men to be at peace because there is no peace and there was no peace. And this was coming from the heart of God, that despite the sin and rebellion of mankind, God only had goodwill towards men. And this was the perfect evidence of it. So let's see how they respond. When they receive the good news from heaven and see this thing, which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. What did they first do? They said, let's now, let's do it. Let's go and check it out. They decided for themselves to see what they had heard, whether it was true or not. And our faith is not based upon a fanciful tale that we can't check. It's not based upon some unreasonable thing that you can't verify. No, our faith makes sense. The message that God has given to mankind can be checked. It can be verified. It can be completely gullible. Because if I give you something, it's going to be able to be checked. And so he wants us to test all things and see whether these things are true. And the Bible, in essence, is that testimony of 40 people plus who wrote down their testimony of what they would, they'd been told, what they had seen the, by men over the, over the ages, over, over a period of 1,500 years of testimony that all perfectly aligns because the God who was behind it is the same God who gave it from beginning to end. And God says, go and check it out. And these shepherds did, the first thing they did was, let's go now. Let's go now. Let's leave, let's leave these sheep over here. Let's go and check this thing out. 
Our faith is not blind. Our faith is based upon people were considered noble because they checked things out. Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks and of you know, even the unsaved can be noble in what they do. If you get something, some information, you can check it out. You can verify that thing. And the Bible says you're noble if you do that. And so the shepherds were noble in their response to the message. They said, let's go and check this thing out. Let's see if it's true. I mean, I think they've, they're finished with their haste. Okay, There's a lot of running around buying presents over the last week or so. A lot of people running around yesterday going to their people having a party together with the family but not only did the did the the shepherds decide i want to check this thing out let's go and check this thing out to see whether it's true they said they made haste about it they were quick to do that you know there are some things in life that you shouldn't just leave sitting there you should do something about quickly you know if you realized now while you're sitting in church that you left your front door wide open how comfortable would you be sitting in your seat would you finish listening to the rest of the sermon or if you realized you left the gas on at home would you start to be fidgety of course you would because there are some things you should not leave hanging around there are some things that are detrimental if you let them stay undone for a long time. And one of those things is the word of God and the gospel. You see, the message these, these shepherds received was the Savior is born. Now that is a type of thing that you don't want to be wasting time for. The Savior of the world was born. How much wasted time do we see in this world? The Saviour was born 2,000 years ago. Are they looking for him? They can sing songs about him at a Christmas carol, stead lives and lost eternities because people think to themselves, it's not that important. It takes how long? It can take a moment. This day might be your or my last so eternity is the most important question that, that a person can have answered. And so they did well to make haste. And then look at 17 to 19. It says, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the thing go and do. They went and told other people about it. They told, they made it known abroad. They shared this things with everyone regardless of whether people thought they were crazy or not. And God expects those who have been given the message and have confirmed that message by being saved and having received Christ as their saviour to share that message with people. It's the message that changes people's lives forever, that saves a person from hell forever. And the message is essentially the same, that Christ, the saviour, has come. Check it out. Do it now. Don't make it, don't wait any longer. And not only has he come, he's saved us from our sins. He's paid for our sins and he's risen again from the grave, proving who he was. And finally, 
It says, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, and it was told unto them. The shepherds returned back to their normal life. They continued as shepherds. They didn't become monks and lock themselves up in a, uh, in a monastery somewhere. They returned to their normal lives, and their lives became a glory to God. They glorified God. They praised God for what they had seen. And the shepherds' lives became a testimony of God's grace. And their motivation was now inspired by what God had told them, what they had seen with their own eyes, what they had experienced for themselves. And that's what our life should look like. We should go about our daily work. We should go about our everyday lives glorifying God and thanking him because we got this message. We were given this message. Whether it, we might not have received it by an angel from heaven, but know what? You heard it through the Holy Spirit of God. And your eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit of God. You were given access to this amazing truth that has changed your lives. And now we are called to glorify God with everything that we are. So I pray that that's been a blessing to you. Be a shepherd. Care for other people. Lead them to the word of God. Lead, lead them to the truth. Feed them. They may be your enemies, even more. Do it more to those people who hate you and despise you. Don't just do it to the easy ones. Do it to the ones that even hate you, because that's what we're being called to do. Jesus didn't come into this world to save the, the popular people or the easy people. Mate, when you surround yourself with sinners, publicans, prostitutes, Jesus didn't come to save the, the, the people who considered themselves to be already good. He came and saved those ones who probably they shared the truth with even those ones who consider themselves your enemy. And you'll fulfill what God has called us to do for Christmas. God bless you. I pray you have a wonderful rest of this Christmas season with your family. God bless you. Thank you. Brother Gomez.